lesson this morning is going to be taken from Acts chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open it up and follow along there or open up your worship guide to the page that it can be found on, page, page number 5. We'll refer to the sermon lesson from Acts throughout the sermon. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. At 8.46 a.m. on Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, American Airlines Flight 11 came crashing into the 93rd to the 99th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Al Bracca was on the 105th floor. Al worked as a vice president and a bond broker for the high-power brokerage uh, Canton Fitzgerald. And he, along with approximately 50 of his other employees, were trapped on the 105th floor. But Al knew plan A. And so in the middle of what must have been extreme chaos and unimaginable panic, Al did something that he had always known he was supposed to do. Messages that came pouring in from friends and family and co-workers of Al during what was the final moments of their life told the story of what Al did. As the tragedy was unfolding, Al gathered together the employees that were around into the conference room on that floor, and with them he prayed. And more than that, by a power not his own, Al witnessed concerning the hope that we all have in the resurrection of Christ. Oh, Al knew plan A, and he knew that there was no plan B. Al knew that God's plan for building his church set squarely on the proclamation of what Christ did for you. He knew that the plan to build his church sits squarely on the promises of what Christ is doing right now with us, for us, and through us. And Al knew that God's plan to build his church was the purpose for his life. And so Al executed. And on a day that saw the tragic loss of so many lives, by God's grace, Al saved lives. Friends, on a day where we are experiencing so many firsts, potentially so many distractions about the first time that we're gathered here for launching a brand new church, that we're distracted by things of the food, the fellowship, the football, the plans that we go have going on afterwards, where we're distracted by our friends and who's here and maybe who's not here. Can I tell you what our prayer is? This, those distractions, you and I can focus on just one thing. And that is what Al knew. My prayer is that you and I leave here knowing just one thing, and that is plan A, because there is no plan B. If you're looking on page six of your worship guide, there's a sermon guide in there. If you're interested in taking notes and filling in the blanks as we go along, and what we will see is that God's plan A to build his church is really three things. It is the proclamation first and foremost, of what Christ did for you. It is the promise of what Christ is doing with us, for us, and through us, and it is the purpose of what you will do. If you didn't get all that right now, don't worry, we'll cover that. But we're going to get started in Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, where Dr. Luke continues writing to his friend Theophilus, continuing, that is, from his gospel 
the Gospel of Luke. We read, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Did you catch what Luke said? He said, I am writing to you about all that Jesus began to do. He didn't say, I'm going to write to you about what Jesus did, and now I'm going to tell you, Theophilus, what you should do. I'm going to tell you what the church must do. No, right off the bat, Luke tells us what the foundation of Christianity, the essence of this faith is all about. It's about a message of what Christ did for you. So many people today, so many even Christians today, even Christian churches believe that Jesus and what he stood for and what he was about, his cross, his grave, they were all great. They all gave us an excellent example of the love and the forgiveness that we should model in our lives. But so many people believe that even with all that, whatever you believe and whatever you do, you can go to heaven. You can be right with God. How? Well, by doing good not doing bad, and when you mess up, saying you're sorry. But look at what Luke says. Right off the bat, he says it's all about what Jesus did. 60% of Christians, yes, Christians in America believe that while Jesus says that he is the source of our salvation, people can be saved in another way as well. But Luke says this, it's all about what Jesus did, what he began to do. Ask yourself, would that work? In a court of law where we just show up after committing a crime and say to the judge, you know what, I'm sorry for what I did. I know that a jury has found me guilty. I know that you've convicted me of this crime, but listen, I'm sorry, I'll do better next time. No, a judge would be forced to say, that's great, I'm proud of you. I'm glad that you're gonna not do that crime again. I'm glad that you're gonna do better and not do wrong. But listen, there's still a barrier between you and your freedom, there's still a penalty, there's still a punishment that has to be paid. And if a society wouldn't work, if a judge would just let everyone go on I'm sorry, if society wouldn't work that way, how can we expect to run a universe that way? If you have lower standards for the God of the universe than for a civil magistrate, how can you expect that to work in our faith lives? God says, look, you all have done wrong. You all have shown inhumanity to your neighbor. You have all shown unfaithfulness to your creator. And now there is a barrier. There's a penalty. There's a punishment that needs to be paid. Isaiah 59 says that your iniquities, a fancy word for your sins, your vices, the things that you regret saying, the things you regret doing, they have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. He says there's a barrier between you and your freedom. There's a barrier between where you want to be by my side and where you are now. And that penalty, well, the penalty is death. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. And so what can we do in the face of that? You can't do anything. You can't do any good that would make up for that cost. And that's where Christ steps in. That's where Christ steps in with what he did 
And Luke tells us what he did. His suffering is what he did. Prophet Isaiah predicted it. He said he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Oh yes, death and destruction, they had a claim on us. Death was the penalty that we deserved. The devil had us in his grips, but that's where Christ steps in and that's where we stand as we just sang in the blood of Christ where Christ looks at us and sees us washed by his sacrifice, washed clean of all that we've done, and he breaks down the barrier. He breaks down the barrier that separates us from God, and so now we are free, we are alive. And it's nothing that we did, but it's all what he did for you. God's plan A to build up his church is first and foremost that the proclamation or the message of what Jesus did for you. Can I tell you, take a quick 60-second commercial here and tell you why I love the name of our church so much? The Way Church. Well, let me tell you that while so many people think that there are many different paths to get to God, it was Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, just hours really before he went to the cross where he met with his disciples and he explained to them Listen, here's who I am. This is what I'm about. Here's what I must do. I must die. I must go to heaven for you. This is the way it has to be. And yet, even at this point, the disciples didn't get it. One of his disciples, Thomas, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, he answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Can I tell you, why I love the name of our church so much? It's because every time it's used by someone who goes to the way or someone who else who claims to be a Christian or someone who even, even isn't a Christian, they're forced to wrestle with a claim, a truth claim. Not that I made, not that a group of people who are getting together in a movie theater claimed, but they're forced to wrestle with a claim that Jesus himself made, that I am the way. There is no other way to the Father except through me. Every time the name is used, every time the name is seen, we are confessing a truth, a truth of something that Jesus said, yes, but more importantly, a truth of something that Jesus did and something that he proved. The apostle Luke, excuse me, Dr. Luke, goes on to say this. He says, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs he was alive. And while there's an entire sermon that we could give about the proofs of what Jesus did when he rose from the dead and what he did thereafter, today we're focusing on just the plan that Christ has for us. And know this, that Christ's plan A for building up his church is first and foremost the proclamation of what he did for you but it also sits on undeniable proof that he did what he was going to do. He did suffer, 
He did die. He did rise. And he ascended. Luke says, it's all about what Jesus began to do. While so many leaders of world religion already did what they were going to do, already taught what they were going to taught, and that's it, Jesus is just getting started. We're in Acts chapter 1, continuing at verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times and the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. God's plan A to build his church is first and foremost the proclamation of what he did for you, but it is also the promises of what Christ is doing with, for, and through you. It's the promises of what Christ is doing right here and right now. You say, what do you mean right here and right now? You just read that he left them and he went into heaven. But Christ's ascension does not mean that he leaves us but rather that he left us with some incredible promises, some promises of what he's doing with you. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is really just repeating a promise that he gave in our gospel lesson, a promise that he gave throughout his ministry to his disciples. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Jesus' ascension, Jesus' ascension to his throne in heaven has major implications for how we are living our lives here. And we're not living them alone. One of the greatest blessings about a community of believers, about a church, about showing up to church on Sunday morning is that all of us get to be here together and we get to be here together bonded by a unique and uncommon bond, the bond of faith, a connection that is unparalleled to any other connection in this world. And even though this community of believers here experiences that during our life, so many of us experience the opposite. We experience loneliness and isolation. It could be for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's because in, in the past couple of years we have lost someone to death, someone that we love dearly. Maybe we've lost someone in our life, not because of death, but because someone we love has literally walked out on us. Maybe we feel isolated, maybe we feel alone, not because someone left us, but because we left. And not for bad reasons, but to start out on a new adventure, a new school. And now that support group of family and friends isn't there. Maybe we feel lonely and isolated by our beliefs. Our beliefs make us different from the people who live with us. Maybe we feel alone because of sin or guilt or something that we've done. But Christ gives us a promise here with his ascension that I am never going to leave you. I am never going to forsake you. Surely 
I am with you always to the very end of the age. St. Augustine, an early Christian theologian, once prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, you ascended before our eyes and we turn back grieving only to find you in our hearts. God wants you to know that in his plan A to build his church, he has built in some incredible promises, a promise that he is always with you. And if that weren't enough, he also says, I am working for you. The Apostle Paul once prayed this to a church in Ephesus. He said, I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope for which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the ones to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ not only promises to be for us, not, excuse me, not only promises to be with us, but also to be for us to be in us. Romans 8.28, that very popular comforting passage that says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That comfort, that promise, it comes to you compliments of the ascension. Because Christ left to go into heaven, he never leaves us, but he is always with us. Have you started something new in your life? Maybe a new job, a new school year, maybe a new church, and you're overwhelmed by all the newness that goes along with it? Christ's power is for you. Parents, are you here this morning and you've brought children with you and even though we know kids are a great source of blessing in our life, a gift from God, they also might be a fairly high source of stress in our lives as well? Well, parents, Christ's power is for you. Do you have fears about the future of this church? Christ's power is for the church. Do you have concerns or worries about how you're going to make it to the next paycheck, how you're going to pay those bills? Christ's power is for you. We might not only always understand how Christ is working for us, but look at the greatest example of that paradox it's the example of the cross, where people thought they were using that as the, to carry out an ultimate evil. It was worked out for our ultimate good, to bring life and immortality to our lives. And it's that promise that Christ gives you, that you might not see my love, you might not know my love, but it is always there for you. Though we may not feel the love, Christ's ascension means that he is working for us. Christ promises that he is with us, that he is for us. And gentlemen, right now I have a question. How many of you have ever said this phrase, very romantic phrase, you complete me? Have you ever said that to your wife or to your fiance or to your girlfriend? Well, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty deep phrase, and we could debate whether it's, uh, whether it's appropriate in relationships and what it actually means, but I think it's always meant as a compliment. Am I right? Well, wouldn't you believe that that compliment, that you complete me, is the compliment that Christ gives his church? 
Listen, in the prayer that Paul said to the Ephesians, he said this, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul calls Christ the head and us the body. And while it's understood that the head controls the body, it's also very right to say that without the body, the head's incomplete. And so just as a body completes the head and makes it whole, so Christ says we fill him, we complete him. And this is the original genius of God's plan A to build his church. Us completing him is a part of his holy and perfect will. He doesn't need us to complete him, but he wants us to. He calls us to be his instruments through which he is working to build up his church. We're in Acts chapter 1. We're continuing at verse 6. They gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Just moments before Christ ascended, the disciples still thought that he was going to establish an earthly kingdom. They still thought in terms of their nationalistic worldview. And so God says to him, no. He says, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and, will be my, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's our point number three, that God's plan A to build his church, it is the proclamation of what he's done. It is the promise of what he's doing, but it's the purpose for what you will do. Christ tells his disciples right before he ascended, you will be my witnesses. Not you can be, or hey, the church should be, or hey, if you have time, be my witnesses. But you will be my witnesses. The year was 1930, and King George was hosting the Naval Conference in London, England. Radio technology was still in its infancy, and yet it was chosen to be the media that was going to broadcast his opening session's address to the entire world. Moments before King George was about to go on air, a young, a young engineer working for the Columbia Broadcast Station noticed that one of the main wire transmitters was completely cut. The entire room stared at the king in silence, watched him wondering what they were going to do with no time to make any repairs. It was that young technician who thought of an idea. He grabbed one end of the broken wire transmitter in his left hand and the other in his right, and for the next 15 minutes, he allowed volts of electricity to flow through him as he held the wires together, and the king's message was carried to the world. That's exactly what's happening right here and right now. We have been called by Christ to be his witnesses, to be the conduit through which Christ's message passes through the world. He could have chose angels, and yet he chose us. He didn't need us, but he chose to work through us and called us to be his witnesses to the world. They were looking 
at him intently up. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Will you be watchers or will you be witnesses? The angel's words to his disciples give us a sense of urgency, a sense of urgency to carry out Christ's command to be his witnesses and give us a sense of urgency to carefully consider whether we will be witnesses or we will be watchers. A less comical variation on the light bulb joke um, well, it goes like this. Guess how many people in a church on any given Sunday morning it takes to witness to one person not in a church on a Sunday morning? Did you guess one, maybe two, maybe ten? Well, a 20-year-long study found that it takes, in the average American church, 19 people who are in a church on a Sunday morning to witness, to share the message of what Christ did for them to someone not in church. 19 people to witness to one person per year. That means in a church of 100, they're only sharing the message of what Christ did, the promises of what Christ does to five people in a year. Those stats aren't only sad, but they're a sin because Christ's church doesn't witness because they want to or because they have fun doing it, although that may be the case. Christ's church witnesses because that is what we have been called to do, to be his witnesses, to be his witnesses to the ends of the world. We have before us the blueprint for God building his church. It's based on the proclamation of what he has done. It's based on the promises of what he's doing, and it's based on the purpose for our life. But I think that perhaps the reason that so many people are not witnesses, why it takes 19 people to witness to one person, is because maybe many of us don't understand what a witness does. So as we close out, we're going to look real quickly at four things of what a witness does. A witness is someone who has seen Christ. It's someone who has a mouth and someone who has seen people, and fourthly, someone who has faith. So let me ask you this. Will you be a witness? Have you seen Christ? You might say, no, obviously I haven't seen Christ. But let me tell you this. The only difference between you physically seeing Christ compared to what the apostles did and actually lay their eyes on him is that what we see is by faith. What we see is through the eyes of faith. Jesus himself talked about this when he looked at his disciples and he said, you believe me because you have seen me, but blessed are those who seen, who believe and yet have not seen. Paul in his prayer says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of the glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us. Oh, my friends, that prayer has been answered. That prayer has been answered this morning and that prayer is answered each and every time that we open up the pages of scripture and look and see the proclamation, the message of what Christ did for us. That prayer is answered each and every time we read the, the express promises given to us and experience them in our lives. Well, every time that happens, we have seen Christ. And so I ask you, will you be a witness? Have you seen Christ? 
If you can say yes to that, why don't you join with me in saying this confession given by Job in the Old Testament, which is true for all people who hope to see their Savior with their own eyes. Let's read together from Job chapter 19, verse 25. Will you be a witness? Have you seen Christ? I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. Yes, I will be his witness. Question number two, will you be his witness? Do you have a mouth? It's an obvious one, right? Um, we all have mouths, right? But it highlights something a little deeper than that. That even though it takes very little to actually be a witness, it takes seeing Christ and simply speaking about Christ, so often there's excuses for why we don't. The devil, this world, tempts us to put down our witness for a variety of reasons. People say, hey, that's why we pay a pastor. The pastor says, hey, if my people won't witness, I can't witness. Collectively say we're too busy to witness. There's too much going on. The church has other things that it could be doing. You say, I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't know anybody who uh, doesn't go to church. Why would I need to witness? Everyone's heard about Jesus today. But look at the call of Christ. He doesn't qualify it one bit. He doesn't say it's for pastors or people who aren't pastors. He doesn't say it's for old-time believers who know every passage in the book of the Bible or people who have just seen Christ in his word and in his promises for the first time. No, he doesn't say that you have to be the most affable extrovert or the most unsociable introvert to share God's word, but we can all do it in our own unique way as we tell what Christ has done for me. As we tell how I have experienced the promises of him with me in my life. Oh, if you can give an amen to that, would you say these words with me? These words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Will you be a witness? Do you have a mouth? I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Yes, I will be his witness. Question number three, have you seen people? And again, another obvious one, but let me tell you a, a quick story. This past Labor Day, while many of us were taking a rest from our labors, our, our friend Rebecca actually uh, went out and did some work. She handed out invitations to her entire neighborhood on Labor Day, witness to them. But she came up short, actually, five short of uh, giving invitations to everyone in her neighborhood. So she stopped by my house to pick up some more. As her and I got talking about how the way witnesses to the community, how we share her faith, I realized what makes Rebecca an incredible witness. It's not the fact that she has faith. It's not the fact that she understands what Christ did for her. It's not the fact that she has a brave faith and goes out and lives it. No, all those things are true, but that's not what makes Rebecca an incredible witness. What makes her an incredible witness is the fact that she sees people, but she looks at them differently. She looks at people through the lens of love, a lens that has been refocused by the love that we have received from our Lord. 
So often when we think about our witness, it, witness to others, it's, it's in t- like technical terms. We think about what we should say, how we should say it, but think about it like this. How many of you have ever experienced a restaurant that you just really love going to? You go and you tell a friend, ooh, I, you gotta go here, I insist. You try this place downtown. Well, what you're really saying to them is, hey, listen, there's so much I can't explain and I want you to experience the atmosphere, the food when you go to this place. So just go, just try it yourself. Well, it's the same thing we do when we tell one of our friends, listen, this is, this is what Christ means for me and why don't you join me at church to find out what he's done for you. What you're saying is much more profound than that. You're saying, I'm lo- I love you and I have something that I want you to experience, that I want you to know that I can't even put in words for myself, but you need to experience for yourself. The way church won't be built by a magic bullet, but by simple math. Us, one at a time, looking at people, the people in our lives, and telling them what Christ has done for us. Have you seen people? Will you be his witness? If so, please join me in saying these words from 2 Corinthians. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Yes, I will be his witness. All right, last one. Do you have faith? Let me ask it another way. Do you have fears? Do you have fears about the future of this church? It's a legitimate question to ask, right? There's a lot at stake here. A lot of people have invested their time in this church. A lot of people have invested their money in this church. What happens if we fail? Did you know one in five churches that start don't succeed? What happens if Christ's power that he's promised us is never seen? What happens if the rest and the renewal that we look for in the word and sacraments is never ours? What happens if the wisdom that Christ promises us in his word is never something we know here? What happens if I fail as a witness? What happens if you fail? Well, therein lies a potentially fatal flaw. It's not about you and I. It's not about trusting in the work that we put forth and trusting in the effort and the things that we do. No, Christ, Christ will work through us and our witness to build his church. But while Christ deigns to depend on our witness, it is Christ who builds his church because Christ wants to build his church and he will build his church and he will build his church by his power and by his plan and by his power. Oh, if we rely on our strength and our effort to build a church, inevitably we will fail. But when we walk by faith, trusting that the proclamation, the message of what Christ did is true, when we walk by faith and have confidence that his promises are real, when we walk by faith, boldly trusting that God's word is working in us and through us and will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it, Oh, that changes the perspective on our witnesses. And yes, we have faith in him because of the Holy Spirit that he sent to be with us. And so would you say with me these words, a promise from our God to us. It's from Isaiah chapter 41. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear for I am with you. 
Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Yes, I will be his witness. May God bless you as you faithfully proclaim the message of what he did. May God bless you as you boldly share the promises of what he did. May God bless you as you with confidence fulfill the purpose that he has given you. May God bless his church throughout the world and may God bless his church here in Fredericksburg, the Way Church. My friends, you know plan A and there's no plan B. Would you join with me and stand as we go before prayer in our God? Lord of the church, be with the people here today as they go out into the world. Help them to know the love that you have made known to us. Bless us with hearts that believe the good news of what you have done for us. Bless us with trust in all the wonderful promises that you give. And bless us with courage and strength as we go out from here to be your witnesses to those whom we know and we love. In your son's name we pray this and all things. Amen.